This is Arsiata Kun, your host at Indigenous Words and Ideas, Why the Podcast. And for this uh, episode and the next one, I, I thought I needed to scale back for a moment and just define a couple of terms. And so this episode, I'm going to attempt to do an introduction to defining indigenous or indigeneity. Uh, in the next episode, I will do uh, similarly, but for uh, the word diaspora. But I thought it would be good to kind of uh, give at least some uh, introductory definitions to these concepts since it's something I've been talking about so far and will continue to do so. Um, also, I wanted to uh, say thank you to everybody who's been listening. I uh, appreciate uh, y'all giving it a chance and also. Uh, to the one person who gave me a uh, positive review on uh, Apple Podcasts, thank you. I seen that, and um, I'll do my best to to keep these coming um, a, as uh, I'm able to. So over here in Aotearoa, um, are we're currently in summer and summer semester, and I begin teaching in the next month uh, for our fall semester. And so when that happens, things are going to slow down definitely because teaching takes up heaps of time. Uh, but I'm going to still try to be putting stuff out there. Uh, but just a little heads up in that regard. Also, I'm trying to get a mic uh, and and so I can do more interviews uh, and get more uh, other people uh, involved and broaden the people you get to listen to. So um, let's get into it, though. For this episode, uh, Indigenous, what what is Indigenous? What does it even mean? That was one of the questions that I had in my research. And so this episode and the next are, are very much uh, grounded in a lot of the work that I was doing. And I did work with uh, Tongan and Pan-Pacific uh, Kava groups in diaspora. And one of the questions that I had was, what does it mean to be indigenous? What does it mean to continue to maintain this identity or, or what does this identity look like, even if people don't assert that they're indigenous? Um, because it's a, a term and a concept that has legal bearing, it has uh, cultural significance. I mean, there's, it's a symbol. It's a word that symbolizes a lot of different things and could point or indicate a variety of different things. And so you've got to think to yourself, when you hear the word indigenous, what do you think of? And that is going to be different all across the world as well, because it's played out differently in different contexts. Um, and so that was one of the questions that I had um, it, throughout doing my research. And so I'm not going to focus on Kava in this episode of the next one. Um, I'm going to hold off on that for now. I'm currently working on a, uh, a video uh, documentary of that and that, that I will release um, hopefully um, soon, <laughs> uh, sometime early this year. And so I'm not going to focus too much on it, but that was the, the I guess, the vessel, the, the vaca, the canoe that I was on um, to try to answer some of these questions within those communities and, and also within myself and in kind of the broader picture. And in, in some of these cases, people would identify as indigenous, but in other ones, they wouldn't. And so I wanted to understand what, what does that identity even mean? Where did it come from? And, and so this is just an introduction, um, and it's going to be all kinds of different perspectives around this particular um, issue and identity as well. So just kind of keep that in mind uh, always as as I share things here. So what does it mean to be indigenous? So let's just start with the word itself. Indigenous came from the Latin indígena, which is also how you say it in Spanish, uh, in order to distinguish the quote-unquote cultural or ethnic from the dominant norms of quote western man within the paradigm of modernity. Okay, so there's a lot in that sentence there. There's a lot of symbolism here, right? So what does it mean to be cultural or ethnic in comparison to 
Western man. Now, that's gendered intentionally there because what this is referring to, and this is uh, drawing from the works of Chad Hamill, Nelson Maldonado Torres, Sean Wilson, Lenny Y. Smith, uh, Walter Mignolo, Gregory Cajete, uh, and several more who influenced me writing that sentence. But it's being defined by what would become imagined as the West, right? And the norm and standard of what people say when they say Western. And so you can't talk about indigeneity or indigenous without talking about the West or Western because they're identities that are entangled in each other. And in a way, they're both kind of invented. And when I, and when I say that, I mean is that they're, they're being constructed within a social system, within a cultural system. To give you an example, have you ever, if you've ever heard the term, oh, ethnic food, all food is ethnic. All food is cultural to a particular people, time, or place. But people use that word to distinguish it, right? Or in, in this case, right, I'm saying the, the cultural. And this is something that I would hear all the time. All oh, people with culture. Well, who doesn't have culture? Everybody has culture. And there's culture all over and in all kinds of different levels. But this is interesting because it's like the, the way people use this word in like everyday speech is about distinguishing from Western men the dominant norm in a particular society, but also globally, if you think about the amount of influence that comes from what is imagined as the West, right? Which is a very recent thing. This is not always how people have thought about the world. And so this is defined or emerges in what's, what is referred to as the paradigm of modernity, right? So this is a particular uh, reality that has come to exist with the idea of being so-called modern. And that's where there was this, these lines began to be drawn as to who was modern and who was not. Now, there's a long and messy history in Europe prior to this, right? We go back to the Roman Empire and think about even the invention of the word barbarian or savage as they come about in the context of Europe and versus the noble or the civilized, which later then gets mixed in with the notion of being Christian. And these are identities, okay, and that, that get emerged over there, but then it gets really messy and becomes global when um, Columbus gets lost and is saved in the Caribbean. Um, and that point in time changed everything. The emergence or the tension or the conflict that gives rise to the identity of uh, being either indigenous or Western and all kinds of other stuff in between. This also is what gives rise to the idea of race as uh, an identity. Now, this isn't to say that people um, weren't invading other people's prior to this. It doesn't mean that people weren't being prejudiced or othering people prior to this. If, However, there are some dramatic shifts in the way this is done, and that's what I'm trying to uh, explain in this episode is how this, this is why indigenous emerges is because it's a, uh, this is a very different circumstance to everything in the past. Everything in the past prior to this 
of course, influences it, but we're talking about a whole new paradigm that emerges out of it, right? The idea of race and labor, the, you know, the first enslavement project was with American Indians across the Caribbean and Central and South America and parts of North America. And be, when massive die-offs were happening, then that is when the, uh, the focus shifted to the transatlantic slave trade and the enslavement of predominantly West Africans. Um, and then the idea of race emerges with that. So, yes, there was servitude before, and we might even call it different kinds of slavery, but I struggle with it, using it in the same way, just because there's a, this is a whole new type of slavery. Because this new kind of slavery is an inherited chattel slavery based on race. So even if you were able to, the select few who were able to obtain their freedom, if you're black, that is then a racial code for enslavement at that time. Therefore, even if you were slave and had papers that showed that you were free because of what you look like, you could be re-enslaved. Or, or if you had never been enslaved, but were in an area of, of enslavement, then you could be enslaved based off of the racial code of your skin color. And so this is a very different system to anything in the past. And also the scale of this, the scale of which uh, this took place in the millions that were dislocated in that process. So this is a completely different thing. And this creates a racial hierarchy of the assumption of white superiority and black inferiority. And then brown and everything else fall in between. It, this is a, a paradigm, a reality of dichotomies, of uh, oppositional binaries. Now, I'm not saying that any of this is good, right? This is just about trying to understand the reality. Because in the same way that white and black are often the way that race is understood or talked about, so is the case of indigenous and, colonialis and colonization. It's then instead of white and black, it's Western and indigenous. And that's that same kind of dichotomy that emerges in that tension. So this reality is argued by the people that I've been reading, and, and I tend to agree, out of 1492, because the world changed dramatically. The idea of being modern, the invention of the West or Western, the invention also of what it means to be indigenous or indigenous, because it was the West that was identifying the indigenous as the native people of a particular place that were in the way of so-called modern progress or in a sense their expansion and occupation. And it's a complicated history and it's very different in different regions, but generally across the Americas we're talking about a major catastrophe and apocalypse where 90 to 95 percent of the population at times were gone. Imagine that. You know, if you have a family of, you know, 100 people and 90 of them die, all you got is 10 left or five left in some cases. I imagine that in that context. It's not just numbers alone. You have to look at it within the context of the percentage of people that died off. And now it wasn't just the disease itself because that was a major part. But if we look back to, let's say, the, the Black Death in Europe, and 50% of the population dying off there. That's massive. That's half of your people. You can imagine, you know, there would be a similar situation in, in the context of the Americas. Get it? But it was worse. It was almost double that. It was almost the entire population. One of the differences was 
this new system of power. The Enslavement of American Indians in a book called The Other Slavery, uh, definitely check that one out, talks about how that was a major imp influence in the intensification of this apocalyptic scale die-offs. Okay? Um, there's even research that's come out recently as well as to the, the climate, the climate globally shifting because of this event in time. And from there, the world was completely different. Never before had there ever been that kind of circumstance. And that is why it's different. Okay, That's why slavery is different from that context forward. That's why colonization and imperialism is different from that time forward. Because there is, it's unprecedented in human history, the sheer scale of what took place. Because there was a colonial opportunity that took place in the massive die-offs. And even then, it wasn't like they could just take over people. That's a bunch of myths, too. Um, in the, like I've mentioned in my first episode, in the context of Ishimilero Guatemala, most of the people that came in, as far as that initial in, uh, invasion, were indigenous peoples. Nahuatl speakers, yeah, there were Europeans involved in leading that, and the ones who ultimately uh, benefited from that, and the others got screwed over. I mean, there's a lesson in history for there, you know, and that's the case in other places too. You, you can't do it without local knowledge or local help, even with only five or ten percent left of that population, because that's home field advantage. And so it took local knowledge and help to be able to uh, fulfill this project as well, which makes the much messier history. Which is why Western indigenous are not two separate categories of, that are pure and distinct. They're entangled. They're entangled with each other. And, you know, and they're imagined as binary opposites, but they're entangled. So even here in Aotearoa, if I say New Zealand, then all of a sudden I'm in the West. How am I in the West and I'm in New Zealand? Or Australia, how is that the West? And then Europe is the West? And then the U.S.? The U.S. is northeast of me here, if I'm looking at directions. So again, thinking about this is an imagined idea, an ideology. Uh, that doesn't mean that it's not real. To say imagined is to say that it's invented by people, but it's also made real by people. And so that has, these, all this has very real consequences. And so when I say that, I'm not dismissing the idea, um, because it's a very real idea that impacts me and everybody around me. Um, and around the globe, but that it is nonetheless identifying it that it is a new idea um, that wasn't always around, and therefore it can also be changed. And so out of this has come this idea and this identity of indigenous that is identified in contrast to being Western. Uh, Linda Tuhiwai Smith talks about and lists a few other terms that are uh, underneath the umbrella term of indigenous, and she lists off First Peoples, Native Peoples, First Nations, People of the Land, Aboriginals, or even Fourth World Peoples. So Fourth World Peoples, for example, think about First, Second, and Third World, the developed, developing, or un undeveloped nations. Those are all very problematic terms and I don't agree with any of them, but they nonetheless exist in our world. So the Fourth World came as, okay, well, what do you do about indigenous people? There was that term that came out of the Fourth World, the invisible indigenous marginalization. So you have racial hierarchy, and then you have national hierarchies within first, second, third world. Um, and then the fourth one was like, wait a minute, this is different. So it's about distinguishing it further. 
um, in Ishimuleo or Guatemala, um, or, or even throughout Abiyala or S South America, uh, the term in Spanish that's commonly used as well as pueblos originarios, which means original peoples. In the Moana or the ocean where I work as well, there's other terms also, uh, people of the sea, ocean peoples. Um, here in Aotearoa, it's common also to hear Pacifica um, or Oceanians uh, to refer to this idea of indigenous, something that's distinct from the Western modern uh, dominant reality or that's considered the norm or invented the norm that's also entangled in ideas of, of race, as I've mentioned, and even gender, which is why I say Western man intentionally, because this is, this is a, a, an ideology that establishes a hierarchy based off of race and gender, religion, um, nation, etc. And I think we need to critically unpack it and uh, collapse it and transform the way we think about the world. And maybe you agree, maybe you disagree with these terms, but I think it's safe to say we all have to deal with these, whether you've thought about it or not. Is there something that encompasses our global reality at this time? And so indigeneity encompasses all these different things, and it can cause tension within those groups because um, it, it is a problematic term because you, not every indigenous person is the same or in the same circumstances. Um, I've alluded to some of that in, in, a, in past episodes, uh, but it nonetheless is a starting point, I think, to think about um, not only identity, but, but policy, law, worldviews, philosophy, a whole range of different ways of trying to understand our world. And so indigenous is drawing from um, uh, Gordon Smith, who referred to the terms in the Pacific as terms of convenience, I think indigenous is also a term of convenience in that we can use it as a starting point um, because it gives off symbolically meaning and then we have to make it more complex as well in that meaning. And so the history of this word is also very recent, right? So I've been making an argument that this is all very recent in human history. We're talking about the last 525 years of a major transformational shift. And um, it first appears in English in 1598, okay? So that's only, you know, a few hundred years ago. Um, and it comes out of the context of conquest. And so it's being used by European colonialism and imperial projects to define the other in lands that they are occupying or invading or exploiting uh, during this era. And so why would indigenous peoples, you know, want to take on that term? Um, and this is the thing that's interesting about it, right? This is not the only term that this has happened with. There's several other terms uh, regarding race or gender that have also, in a sense, been reclaimed by people. And so although it was framed by conquest, indigenous peoples have reclaimed the word and used it to identify themselves as distinct or in uh, opposition to this current dominant global world order ideologically, uh, but it's also tied materially, right? Or the capitalist system is very much ingrained into this uh, ideology. Um, you know, you think about land is one of the, it is the asset within capitalist value. And there are very different ways of understanding value. There are thousands of different economic possibilities and systems if we understand a variety of different worldviews. But the one that came out of this type of colonialism in modernity is capitalism. We're now currently in the age of neoliberal capitalism. 
you think about it, if you, you know, for those who have a car or are able to buy a car, if you buy a car, you, as soon as you drive off the lot, that, that depreciates in value. It's not as worth as much anymore. But if you own land or a house, that's the only thing that appreciates in value. It increases in value. Okay, that's the primary source of capital within this system. So you got to then think in the context of what that means when people have been removed from land, who have been displaced from land, or when land is occupied by this ideology, how that transforms our relationships and how it transforms the way we come to understand the world. Absolutely different to anything in our human history, and this is a very recent idea. And the reason I keep saying recent is to try to make the point, too, of that doesn't mean that this is normal, <laughs> and it doesn't mean that this is the solution or... Um, that it can't change. If we look at the depth of, of time of our existence as a species, there are a lot of other options and possibilities. And if you allow yourself to be creative and to uh, reclaim your imagination, then there are thousands, if not more, of possibilities in, in the world that we live in beyond our current reality. There's other people who have termed indigenous in different ways. Gregory Cajete explains that terms tribal and indigenous apply to the large amount of quote-unquote traditional or tribally oriented communities with identities tied to specific places, regions, or whose culture espouse quote, an inherent environmental orientation and sense of sacred ecology, close quote. So that's a key thing here too, is a very different relationship to place. So part of what happens in modernity is this ideology that emerges, that separates so-called man, um, and again, gendering that intentionally there, with from so-called nature. Again, like white and black, like uh, Western and indigenous is a very problematic dichotomy, but it's nonetheless how people come to think about it. And so think about, you know, how that has come about. Like if you've ever used the, with the term, I mean, I use these words. It's so part of our everyday reality, you know, like, oh, we're, we're in nature. Well, aren't we part of nature? What isn't part of nature? What, you know, are we not, are we exempt from natural phenomenon because we live in a city or, or even in a rural area? Like, you know, that it isn't going to stop an earthquake or a, a tornado or a hurricane or a storm or the rain or the sun or any of those things from reaching you. So this idea that we're separate, okay, out of that also comes the idea of the wilderness or that which is wild. This is also what influences the ideas, the deficit views that were originally framed on indigenous peoples and black folks and blackness and then the other races that have been invented out of that as well within this reality because out of the and i'm not you know gotta take yeah i understand there's people who who may have strong religious belief and faith and i'm and i'm just trying to say this carefully in respect to that because i come from religious tradition as well and have a lot of relations in there but just go with me for a moment, give it a chance. Um, that doesn't mean that you have to say, agree that this is the interpretation, but this is definitely a interpretation um, that has dominated. And so that's why I have to 
talk about it and also critique it is the idea of wilderness it comes out of the the bible and christianity and a christian identity right to be christian was synonymous with being so-called civilized this is the entanglement of christianity within the roman empire and within european imperialism and colonization you know we could argue that people uh weren't reading the bible or didn't have access to it maybe they didn't understand it oh the latin says this the greek says that or the hebrew says that sure yeah i'm in agreement like, this is very different but I'm talking about being practical to the reality that look at the US it's a Christian nation at least in identity they say but how many have actually read any of those things so it doesn't matter if they're not reading it but if they identify with it that becomes part of that identity and so in history Christianity and being Christian has been synonymous as being civilized noble not heathen not pagan not a savage okay not wild and this comes out of this idea of Adam and Eve Okay, so again, I'm not saying this is the correct interpretation. I'm saying this is the dominant interpretation that has been expressed through this paradigm of modernity and colonization that gives rise to the definition of indigeneity or being indigenous. Because Adam and Eve are in a Garden of Eden, and then they're separated from that. And all of a sudden, for the rest of the Bible, you know, it's no longer a garden. It's now the wilderness and the wilderness is a place that you go to suffer, to struggle, to be made into something. And so it's a really interesting dichotomy of split. Now, I think that could be a metaphor for a transformation of society anciently in that part of the world if we look at the old texts. But what's important here is how this has been used. Because then when you show up to the Americas and you have this massive die-off, because the large number of European settlers that arrive, most are coming after the initial engagements, right? And so there's been massive die-offs that have happened. And so there's this idea that, oh, man, there's nobody here. And there were people there. But there's this idea that um, that, that was the case, that this was terra nullis, right? The vacant land, right? And then you have the papal bulls that get involved with the doctrine of discovery that gives a religious political authority to claim land, which is ironic, right? So the, there's no separation of church and state because the legal precedence to steal and occupy land comes from a religious mandate. But that is what has, you know, influenced a lot of these ideas. And so then indigenous peoples are then identified as, oh, you're the ones that are in the wild, in the wilderness. And so you are wild too. You are so-called savage, right? And again, that term wasn't invented in the Americas. That was first used for people of the British Isles, the, the, the Celts and the Picts and, and, and different peoples there. And the barbarians were the Germanic tribes of Northern Europe. Those terms were invented prior to this colonial project, but then became mixed and entangled. And then those people who had previously been part of that became modern subjects. They became modern, they became civilized. They no longer were savage or barbarian. This influences the way we think about time as well, of progress. So this idea of linear progress of a primitive past and a modern future, this is what happens is this ideology. You have people, everybody was indigenous at some point in time somewhere because it's a paradigm of how you relate to the world. But not everybody is indigenous anymore. And so this is the, the thing that comes out of this, to become modern in a sense is to detach either intentionally or unintentionally, depending on what side of, the, of power you're on, from the ancestral 
relationships, ancestral identity, and experiences that have carried our, our species for a lot longer than the last 500 years and the ideology of now has carried us. Let me share a quick quote by Eve Tuck, a a brilliant indigenous scholar. And she talks about, I don't love the word indigenous more than all other words. I care about it insofar as it conveys a spatial, political, ongoing, and historical relationship to the state. I care about how it connects up with other peoples. Close quote. And that's something she posted up on Twitter. And I really like it because I, I feel like, yeah, it's not, you know, people prefer to call themselves by what they call themselves. I prefer we not. But I use Mayan, it's a term of convenience. I use indigenous, it's a term of convenience. And it works, and it connects me to other people because when I say it, it's like a code of we align. It's just like if you think about, if you, ha- if you share a culture with somebody, you know, even if you're not this, exactly the same, but if you have a shared overlap, what that means. So for me, for example, like if I'm in a space with a lot of light-skinned folks, a lot of white folks, and there's another brown or black person in there, not always, but... 98% of the time, most of the time, you know, we do a little eyebrow raise, a little head nod. It's like, we see, I, like, I, I see you. It's like, we're experiencing something similar in this space. And I don't even know who that person is. I never met them before. There's, there's, there's that, you know. But it isn't just on the, the racial codes that exist in our reality. It's also on the basis of class, right? So sometimes I have more in common with somebody who's a white working class person than I might with even a person who looks like me, who is of middle or upper class. Um, one of the things that was difficult for me when I first got to New Zealand was, in New Zealand, it was kind of common, mainstream, middle class culture, I think. But for me, it seemed like really, really upper class. But whenever there was a seminar here at university, afterwards, they'd have crackers and all kinds of different cheeses and fruit, and they'd had their wines and their beers and all this and I was like what is this don't get me wrong though like they, they got me like if you've never had French cheeses you, man that that'll that'll get you at least for me I love cheese and I started you know getting all these different kinds I was like man I had no idea <laughs> but for me it was like so bougie like this was like super upper class because in the context of the U.S. for me anything that was associated with that was like upper class within the racial hierarchies because that's European, right? European was always high class. The British accent, French cuisine, whatever, right? And then here in, in New Zealand, they have a closer relationship to that European tradition as commonwealth. And so that's kind of everyday thing. People use the term, oh, you know, have a cup of tea. That's a regular thing here. And so for me, that all seemed like upper class for, for a while. Then I had a question. I was like, well, why is that? Right, so people who weren't used to that kind of stuff, even if they didn't look like me racially, sometimes I would get, you know, we'd have a cultural commonality because we were unfamiliar with what to do and what goes with what and who eats that. And, you know, like, that's another example. Um, sports teams is another one. Like, just to, give, just to give one other example of symbolic social cues that happen, right? Like, if, you're, if there's a sports team that you follow and you're wearing a, a uniform or a jersey of that team and you meet somebody else... 
you may not even know who that person is, but if they're wearing that, that's a symbol, okay? Just like skin color can be a symbol, just like language can be a symbol, just like food can be a symbol, just like music is a symbol, right? What you wear is also a symbol. And if you're like, oh, you know, you might be like head nodding or, or like, yeah, you know, especially if they're playing that week or if they did well or maybe they lost and you're mourning the loss. So the, those are other cues in the way they come about. And so symbols and signs connect people and indigenous is another one that connects people with common histories to colonization um, and common uh, often cultural values that privilege communal ways of seeing the world and that maintain a sacred ecology that doesn't mean that we're kumbaya you know don't impact nature so-called nature it means that we understand our impact and so we're mindful of that impact and have a huge reverence for our origins in place. And to give you an example, uh, we knock Mayan people often before they harvest will give an offering to the earth, for example. We know that we've impacted the earth, right? We've, we've, uh, we've tilled the ground, we've watered, you know, if you're an agriculture people. Um, and so you acknowledge that you're, you've made an impact but you're acknowledging that impact, so they give offerings. If you're from a a society um, that was eating primarily meat, like let's say the Plains folks, um, Lakota or or Kiowa or or whoever in that region, um, maybe your primary diet is bison at that time or Tatanka, the the buffalo, you're going to make acknowledgments in that hunt. Obviously you made an impact because you've taken, you know, life out of the that heard, but you're making an acknowledgement. It's about a, a, a mindfulness, a, a an outlook of the worldview that is trying to um, remember that we're connected, right? And so the things that we do have an impact, just like you know, natural phenomenon has an impact on us. And so that's this is what the word indigenous can do is it can give off these symbols, these social cues to common worldviews. Um, that that we share as indigenous peoples, even though that's going to be very different and have specifics in our own contexts. And so that's another thing to be thinking about. And so indigenous is, is this really interesting uh, identity because of that. And it, there's all kinds of different in, indigeneities, right? And you might have indigenous ancestry, but not see the world in an indigenous way. Or you may have once been indigenous, but no longer have any ties or connection to that. Or maybe you know you're indigenous ancestrally and trying to reconnect or revitalize knowledge. Or maybe you are indigenous still in the place that you're indigenous to and have knowledge and you're holding on to it and trying to pass it on. So there's all these different points of of that identity and there's a broad diverse spectrum in that and so the other thing for me to think about with indigeneity is that it's really it's a question of time as to when do you belong Um, where i believe race is a question of space as to where do you belong so give you an example when i was in high school was in salt lake west side of salt lake city i remember the the mayor at the time was going up for re-election shows up to my house asking to put up a poster in front of uh, our house but then he asks me if i'm legal to vote and I, i'm assuming that he's talking about my age because i was you know was young younger looking then and <laughs> um i was 18 and I, and I was trying to answer him I was like yeah i registered to vote um just like i registered for the draft like you're legally required to do it that in the in that country 
But he cut me off and said, like, oh, no, no, are you legal to vote? And I was like, what is this guy talking about? And then he started making references to my legal standing in the United States as if I was legally there or not, as if I was documented or undocumented. And I was like, what? You know, and so he's, in a sense, questioning whether I belong there or not. Wherever his political views are, in that moment, he was questioning whether I belong there and basing it off of what I look like. And so that's what I mean by race is a question of space. It's we're question, being questioned where you belong. If you've been, if somebody has called the cops on you to say, hey, uh, they haven't ordered at Starbucks, you need to leave because you got dark skin, you're being questioned as to where you belong. It's a question of space because race is something that we see. It's visible. And initially, race was overtly talked about because it was in a deficit view. There was a consciousness shift that said, oh, racism isn't, isn't good. White supremacy isn't good. All of a sudden, there's a, a, a common consciousness that says that's not good. So people don't want to talk about race anymore. And so this idea of, oh, we don't see race comes about. And it's like, uh, yeah, we do. And we can't just shake it off. We actually have to address this and change the transform the system and the power and the symbols, everything, if we want to really uh, move beyond that paradigm. Um, but indigenous is a question of time. So representations of indigeneity are often invisible, and when they are visible, so race is visible, indigenous is invisible in this p paradigm of modernity oftentimes. Um, things are changing with the information age um, where people can put out stuff, but often the mainstream representations have been representing indigeneity in the past. So think about any movie about native peoples. It's often in the past, the colonial era, okay? Or historic uh, pasts of, you know, Westerns or whatever. And so that is freezing that identity in the past. Like we're contemporary people, we live today, we do so-called modern things. Um, and that is something that we continue to evolve, but if we're only presented in the past, and this is what impacts identity quite a bit for indigenous peoples, is if you are frozen in the past, then you're identifying and defining yourself from the point of European colonial contact. Um, but this is also the, the, the thing that we have to question, at least for me, and I'll talk more about that in the next episode on diaspora, because I think what happens is if we only define ourselves from the point of contact, we're also reinforcing the idea of we're frozen in the past um, and aren't allowing ourselves the reality that has always been the case and that still is the case, that we're mobile, that we move, we adapt, we make new relations. And so that's why I argue for a, a definition of indigenous that is about a paradigm, about a consciousness, um, and more than just an ancestry uh, or, or racial um, identity. Um, of course, that's part of it because of the world we've inherited, but I, I, I think that if we think about it in this other way, it opens it up to other possibilities. do a little bit of reading here because these are some great works that I think are really helpful in trying to understand some of these things and I think they do a, a good job of 
of explaining what's what I'm what I'm trying to do, explain. So I'm just going to read a couple of quotes. The first one is by John Trudell, a brilliant poet and um, uh, thinker and uh, activist um, who you know has passed away now, but was hugely influential to me in kind of helping me understand these things. Um, there's all kinds of works by him on YouTube if you want to check him out, John Trudell. And he, he critiques this system and ideology um, in the following. And so here it goes, quote, it has been literally the most bloodthirsty, brutalizing system ever imposed on this planet. That is not civilization. That's the great lie. That it represents civilization. That's the great lie. Or if it does represent civilization, and it's truly what civilization is, then the great lie is that civilization is good for us. I think that we really need to put serious thought into understanding that we are dealing with a disease. It's like there is this predator energy on this planet, and this predator energy feeds upon the essence of the human being, the spirit. This predator energy will take fossil fuel and other resources out of the earth and turn it into fuel to run a machine system. But in order for there to be a need for that system, and in order for that system to work, they have to mine our minds to get at the essence of our spirit. For this predatory system, this disease to work, we must not be able to use our minds in a clear, coherent manner, because if we use our minds in a clear and coherent manner, we will not accept the unacceptable. Close quote. Other parts of John Trudell's work talk about um, becoming human or remembering how to be human. And so I like that definition of indigenous because um, that makes sense to me. And in the research that I did, that's what kept coming up was these memories, these living memories and connections to what it has meant to be human ancestrally, which is why indigenous peoples have cultural values of community, of uh, being communal peoples. Because if you want to take a, another point of view of that, as a species, that's what makes us who we are, is community. Right, we and we can. We talked. I talked about this in the last uh, interview um, with the final. Right, like the language and culture that we can transmit as a community and, and share symbols in that way and transmit it to another generation. That's what makes us us. Of, you know, of of what it means to be human. And so, indigenous I, is a metaphor in my mind of what it means to be human and a living relationship to that ancestral humanity, even in our contemporary reality. Of course we adapt, of course we evolve, of course we have to deal with our current circumstances, but that we've, we're holding on, we have a value of holding on to the knowledge and wisdom of what makes us us. You know, if you take an evolutionary perspective, that's 2.3 million years as hominid species, you know, and a couple hundred thousand years as so-called, you know, modern humans, as, you know, homo sapiens which are mixed with other hominid species. I mean, if you ever take a DNA test, I'm not saying to take one or not take one. I'm just saying if you did, like you're going to find that you have some Neanderthal ancestry. Okay. And so the idea that cavemen are primitive and, in, you know, is that idea of linear progress. Oh, the past was primitive and savage and wild. And so anybody that's still trying to be in the wilderness is wild and savage and primitive in the past, which is why indigenous people have been oppressed and marginalized and the prejudices exist against us because of that idea. Now, I don't obviously buy into that, 
because I don't believe that our ancestors were primitive. I think that human beings, as an anthropologist, as an indigenous person, I believe that human beings are intelligent. And so I like the word homo sapien as a word, as intelligent human. We adapt to our time and our circumstance. And as climate changed in the past, we adapted to agricultural revolution 10,000 years ago. Um, we've adapted continuously but we also have the ability to question the adaptations. And I'm not saying that everything in the last 525 years needs to be thrown out the window because it's messy. We're entangled in it. And it's not possible without local help, like I've said. But what I am saying is we need to question what, we've, what we have inherited and question the scale in which these changes have happened and question the repercussions and the consequences that these this paradigm has for people because it's not good for everybody it's been really bad for a lot of people and so that's something we should also question and then also question that that it can't be changed and question how fast it's happened because this is a dramatic shift never in our history as a species have we changed so much so quickly in such a large way and what i'm saying and what i think i hear other indigenous people saying is we need to slow down for a moment take a step back Think about this because we've been questioning it since the onslaught, right? And we're inviting others to do the same. At least that's how I see it. That's my view. That's my personal point of view, right? And so let's look at some of the consequences. Another quote. This is from Winona LaDuke, um, great activist, brilliant mind. And she talks about the linear thinking of Western modernity, of this reality that exists. Um, and she says, quote, the idea that you can always make a new frontier and find someplace greener. There's going to be greener grass someplace and that we can trash it and move on. The perfect examples of linear thinking are two things. You have a linear production system where the largest products that we produce are waste. 50 trillion pounds of waste. And the largest growth industries are what? Waste management and the social element of that? Prisons. There you go. That's a linear production system, which is totally unsustainable, close quote. And I'm my, trying to be conscious and mindful of that stuff too. We can't throw it away. What is a way? Where is a way? She talks about that. Wow, a way is still on the earth that we share. And so we need to be rethinking all of this stuff and what we've inherited, you know, because uh, with the impacts and consequences have already hit us and they've been hitting some people more than others for uh, since the beginning of this new reality. Um, and they're going to continue to get worse for everybody. It's going to impact everyone. Um, one way to, to also kind of identify and question this idea of, you know, like when she talks about being able to throw away, you know, it's just, again, it's tied to that idea of where is the center and where is the other, you know, and where, you know, and so one of the terms that I hear often, you know, kind of everyday speech is, you know, we're in the middle of nowhere or they're in the middle of nowhere or being out in the boonies or the sticks or whatever. You know, what does that even mean? You know, and I, I remember uh, listening to a, a Shoshone elder one time in, in Utah. Forgive me, I, I, I can't think of his name at the moment. But I remember he was sharing a song with us about the desert, in the West Desert of Utah, and, and on into Nevada as well. And how, you know, people talk about, oh, we're in the middle of nowhere when they're out in the desert. And he's like, that's actually the middle of somewhere. That's our center. And his song that he sang was about the beauty of that desert. 
And so hopefully to get you to question and think about how that stuff impacts our everyday realities. It's in our language because it's become part of our, our worldview as modern peoples that are subject to, to this current reality. Right, capitalism is another part of this, right? Because there's the idea that you can always grow more, continual unrestrained growth, as if you need to. Why isn't what we've taken enough? Like, because it's human-centered as well. It's only thinking about us as human beings, as people. Whereas an indigenous perspective, in my mind, would also include the other relations we share this world with, because we also depend on those, and we're starting to see the repercussions now that. There's other species that have gone extinct or that are endangered and the role that they play in the world that we live in, whether that's regarding our food ways and food systems or even whales and the way they contribute to producing oxygen um, in circulating water in the ocean. I mean, there's so many different examples, you know, this modern reality and all these, uh, you know, assumptions that come with it don't allow us to actually think about all the things that we're actually connected to. And so I, again, the reason I think indigenous is better thought of as a paradigm uh, is because it's something that I hope we can learn. Um, Figueroa, Helen, and Raghu define indigeneity by its rift with so-called civilization, similar to what John Trudell was talking about. And so they say this is a rift with the modern, the Western, the capitalist. They argue that efforts to revitalize and rearticulate ancestral traditions by indigenous peoples is, quote, part of their long-standing struggles for emancipation from the hegemonic world system. This has given rise to an alternative indigenous paradigm known as indigeneity. Close quote, indigeneity is a variety of worldviews, epistemologies, and ontologies that practice communal lifeways and advance a non-anthropocentric and decolonial alternative to the capitalocene or anthropocene's current circumstances, an ecological and socio-political crisis of civilization. And so there's all these crises that we hear about and talk about now, but we need to look at the root causes of them. Gregory Cajeta adds that, quote, the crisis of modern man's identity is his cosmological disconnection from the natural world, a deep sense of incompleteness. And so, close quote. So again, using the words that we've come to inherit to try to um, understand the idea of what it means to, to be indigenous. And so the other one I wanted to share, this is coming from an article called Indigenous Perceptions of Time. Decolonizing Theory, World History, and the Fates of Human Societies. And this is by Leo Kilsback. Um, I had the, the fortune of, of meeting him at a, a conference, and he pointed me to his, this article because he, he talks about Mayan calendar in here and different ways of thinking about time. And I really liked his take on this um, because, again, it's not that we don't impact the world, but it's that we understand the impact. And this is why, you know, uh, Maya city-states would rotate after a period of several generations. So there was a conscious abandonment of sites, which is a very different worldview of saying, hey, we need to let places regenerate if we want to continue to live in a sustainable and healthy way. And I've talked about it in the past. Part of our cosmology is we remind ourselves of when we didn't live in that way and the consequences that that caused us. And as people, and so that we recognize that, and the rest of us need to remember this, I, I think. And so he refers to Western society as an anomaly because it's so different from even 
previous European societies. And so that's why I'm, I'm very careful when I say that. I'm like, this is an, invent, an ideology. Because even in today in Europe, there's still indigenous peoples there. The Sami up in Scandinavia. Um, and there's colonial struggles there still. If you think about Scot- uh, Scotland and the, and the referendum for independence, there's still those colonial tensions with Britain there. And so it's not like those things don't exist there either. But the idea of the West uh, globally and Western is an ideology and a system of power that's entangled in race and class and economy um, and gender and, and colonization that um, is drastically different from anything we have experienced as human beings prior to the last 500 years or so. And so he, he makes this um, point in the, the closing of his uh, article. I'm just going to read you the conclusion. And so he says here, quote, Uh, American Indians have rarely favored the mainstream concept of history, especially world history and so-called prehistory. Traditional mainstream models condemned indigenous peoples as primitive and barbaric, thus branding them as unstable, fragile groups without legacies, which crumbled under the might of cultured Europeans. When world historians seek the formula for the dramatic collapses of human societies, they assume that previous human societies fell in similar fashion and apply this standard to societies that may not have fallen at all. As we know, indigenous societies were stable, sophisticated, and well-established cultures for far from primitive. Visualize, for example, the multiple flowerings of Maya cultures in the Garden of Mesoamerica or the Easter Island Society, which maintained balance for hundreds of years after abandoning their statue-carving empire long before Europeans landed on their shores and wreaked havoc. It is inaccurate and wrong for historians to assume that societies fell when their progeny had maintained vibrant cultures hundreds of years upon abandoning previous lifestyles. It is equally unfair to judge societies based on their parent, grandparent, and great-grandparent societies while simultaneously devaluing and dehumanizing their descendants. Indigenous societies were able to make accurate and intelligent observations from their spiritual understandings and their timeless place in the universe. Several indigenous populations endured endured much change long before the standing of immigrants from Europe. But of greater importance, indigenous cultures enjoyed long periods of stability and balance. Their understanding of history and time should be appreciated, especially by settler civilizations that obsess over their own birth, achievements, and demise on indigenous lands. The Western understanding of history and time has allowed us arrogantly to value United States history over others and assume that no other civilization on earth is worthy of attention as our 240-year young civilization. Furthermore, when interpreting apocalypse, mainstream historians equate it to the end of the entire planet and all of humanity. Damning all humans to a single fate of suicide achieves nothing in understanding human realities. Such a view of humans tells us that we truly have not learned much about our existence, despite the time we have lived on this earth. Western societies have asserted superiority over indigenous peoples for centuries, while simultaneously proving to them that they, are, they as colonizers were the most inhuman, destructive, violent, and deceitful civilizations, but change can happen. And indigenous people have wanted change since falling prey to the anomaly organism. American Indians have been trying to maintain their spirituality and affirm the interconnectedness of humans and Mother Earth for more than 500 years. The new movements and eco-friendliness and peace seem innovative and impressive to Western civilization, 
but they are echoes of ancient philosophies that have slowly gained respect by those offending nations. Better late than ever, all human societies are indigenous to the earth, and the challenge for Western societies is that it takes longer for them to come to this realization and respect the indigenous identities that have survived. For example, Germany's reemergence into a new world has driven an obsession with indigenous culture, but in searching for an indigenous identity, they often off offensively mimic and appropriate existing indigenous identities. The challenge for indigenous people, on the other hand, is very different. Their goal is not to return to, to a previous world, but to emerge into a completely new decolonized reality. For in Indians, this becomes most challenging because most vividly remember their previous worlds. They can recall life before colonization, when it was good and in, and in balance. These past beautiful societies were unnaturally forced into change by the barbarism of another society, which disrupted the natural life cycles. American Indian societies were forced to assimilate into societies that were incompatible with indigenous ways. Members of these societies continue to suffer from the effects of genocidal warfare and assimilation policies that can only be described as unnatural and unearthly. In the search of, for balance, it is natural to desire to return to a much happier time, and some try to recreate the old world. Can, colonization cannot be undone, but it can be endured and overcome through decolonization. This is what indigenous societies must do to emerge into a new reality of indigenousness, and they must do so in accordance with the teachings from their elder societies. Close quote. It's hard for me to try to follow up uh, Leo Kills back there, and so I'm going to uh, wrap it up and, and just summarize, you know, that think about the ancient world and, and uh, our ancestral life ways differently, uh, to value and learn from indigenous peoples, um, that everyone was indigenous at some point in time and that we're all indigenous to this planet and that we can unlearn, relearn, remember different realities and imagine and create new ones to endure the current one that we're in that we can transform to a better, uh, more sustainable reality. Certainly conflict exists. It may always exist but that we can do so in a way that is mindful of that and that we can prevent and have protocols in place of reconciling those relationships. If you don't know your indigenous worldview, then you don't have to pretend that you do. And you also don't have to appropriate another one. You can learn from other ones while you remember who you were and create who you can be. You know, you just have to keep it real. This is the issue that I think he raises up there, you know. And this is something that I have applied to myself. Like, I don't know everything. I don't speak my indigenous language fluently. I'm trying to relearn it and learn it. But I'm also trying to evolve and adapt to my current reality and keeping it real to what I know. As a, you know, someone who grew up in a working class neighborhood, hanging out with people from the ocean, who currently lives in Aotearoa and who has a diverse ancestry. Like, that's just, that's me. That's who I am. And, uh, and for me... I, that's what I think about with indigeneity is a consciousness that values uh, communal life ways, values place, and uh, brings the past into the present with ancestral wisdom and experience um, in a sense to respect our elders, 
right? And, and that's what I think Killsback is getting at here as well. So I'll leave it at that. Uh, next episode, we'll, we'll kind of unpack this a little bit further in the context of diaspora. Um, so thanks for tuning in. Uh, and that's me for now. Sibalak Matyosh.